Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the CardioNerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, we will learn all about omega-3 fatty acids and the battle of the oils, with faculty expert, Dr. Pam Taub, and fellow lead, Dr. Patrick Zaka. Stay with us. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And without further ado, Tommy, take it away. Hey, CardioNerds. Welcome once again to another episode in our series on lipids and preventive cardiology, where we will continue in our journey today in discussing the differences between over-the-counter dietary omega-3 supplements and prescription fatty acids, while also exploring their benefits and appropriate clinical uses. I'm thrilled to be joined today by CardioNerds co-founder Amit Goyal, as well as some incredible guests in the world of preventative cardiology. Thanks, Tommy. It's so great to be back with you today. And I've been really looking forward to this particular episode. We definitely have some incredible guests with us today, Dr. Pam Taub and Dr. Patrick Zaka. Patrick completed his medical school at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, followed by internal medicine residency and a chief resident year at Emory University. He's currently a first-year cardiology fellow at UCLA and is a cardiac fellow of House Tausig. We are thrilled to present this triglyceride episode together. Patrick, welcome to the show. We are so excited to finally have you on the podcast. You've been an incredible member of the CardioNerds family for nearly a year now. Tell me, though, how are things over there in Pacific Standard Time? Hey, Amit, thank you so much. Pacific Standard Time is great, but I just feel like I'm always three hours behind all of you. And as I get home from work, <laughs> all of you are already asleep, so... I have a difficult time catching you, but you know, we always find a way to make it happen. But seriously, I love living in LA. I'm so grateful to have started fellowship in cardiology at UCLA. It's thus far been an incredible experience. Again, thank you so much for the introduction. I'm so excited to be here. It's been amazing to be working together in the CardioNerds Academy so far and see all of us transition from residency to cardiology fellowship together. I'm greatly looking forward to this discussion on over-the-counter omega-3 fatty acids and prescription fatty acids. It is my huge honor to introduce Dr. Pam Taub. Dr. Taub, Professor of Medicine, is the founding director of the Step Family Foundation Cardiac Rehabilitation and Wellness Center at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Taub is a leader in preventive cardiology and has authored over 100 publications, abstracts, and book chapters. Dr. Taub is a leader in multiple professional societies, including board membership for the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. 
Dr. Taub, it is a privilege to learn from you today. Welcome to the Cardio Nerds. It's great to be here. Dr. Taub, you've made such incredible and lasting contributions to both the science and practice of preventive cardiology. You're a leader in the local, international, and professional society stages. I think it's fair to say that you enjoy preventing cardiovascular disease. How did you get interested in cardiovascular prevention? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan of cardio nerds, and I wish we had something like this when I was a fellow, because what you guys do is really take difficult concepts, complex trials, and you make them very accessible and you simplify them with your incredible graphics. So congratulations to you and your team for all that you're doing. I really love what I do. And I think the art and elegance of medicine is recognizing disease before it overtly manifests and preventing evolution of disease. I also love clinical and translational research and prevention is an area where we've had so many amazing developments in both medical and lifestyle therapy. For instance, we've seen with landmark clinical trials like courage and ischemia, how important medical management is. And we've also seen new drug classes such as the PCSK9 inhibitors and the SGLT2 inhibitors that are really important in preventing adverse cardiovascular events. So it's a really great time to be in the cardiovascular prevention field. That's amazing, Dr. Taub. And I can hear your passion and your voice when you talk about this topic. And, you know, I just want to thank you for your kind words about cardio nerds and just reflect that it really is such a team effort and wouldn't it be possible without the time and energy donated from all the faculty and guests who've lended their expertise on the podcast in preparation for our journal clubs and creating our content. So we're just so thankful for people like yourself who really make cardio nerds what it is today. And going off of that, I'm so excited for this discussion we're going to have today regarding over-the-counter and prescription fatty acids. To put things into perspective, we previously discussed EPA as well as EPA-DHA combination pills, as well as the trials involving their relation to cardiovascular outcomes. Now, today, we're planning to discuss the clinical use and prevalence of over-the-counter omega-3 fatty acids and the available prescription fatty acids as well as their indications for clinical use. With that introduction, Patrick, do you want to kick us off? Absolutely. Thank you, Tommy. As always, I just like to start with a story. Rarely do I get cravings for chocolate milk, and I was at the grocery store the other day and blindly bought a carton of chocolate milk. I got home, I opened it to drink, and I noticed the label on the bottle said, reinforced with three times as much DHA, omega-3 fatty acids. And Tommy, I'm not sure how I felt about that, but I can tell you I didn't drink it. I guess I didn't have the strength to drink it, no pun intended. That's amazing. Patrick, you were able to resist the chocolate milk. I don't think my son, Dhruv, would have been able to, but hopefully by the end of the episode, we can clarify just why you were unsure about drinking that milk. That sounds like a plan, Amit. The way I was hoping to outline this episode was to break it down into two main parts. I think first and foremost, I noticed that there are many different terms that have been used loosely or interchangeably. And I thought we could start by clarifying these terms. The terms I'm referring to are those such as fatty acids, fish oils, omega-3, EPA, IPE, DHA, and the list of names and acronyms goes on and on. I feel like these are confusing and it may be helpful to set our grounds as far as defining these terms to start with. Once we do this, we can start putting some of these medications in our head-to-head -head battle of the oils. 
So firstly, fatty acids. When we talk about fatty acids, we are essentially talking about chemicals that contain carboxylic acids, which are carbon atoms that have a double bond to oxygen and a single bond to a hydroxyl group that are bound to a long aliphatic chain, which are carbon and hydrogen atoms arranged in straight or branched chains. Next, we narrow it down to omega-3 fatty acids. These specific type of fatty acids are polyunsaturated fatty acids noted for having a double bond three atoms away from the terminal methyl group. And those acids are usually called omega-3 oils or omega-3s. They're essential fats in that we can't make them on our own, but we need to consume them from our diets. Now, Patrick, there are a few different types of omega-3 fatty acids. So can you help me out and narrow things down a little further as we progress in our journey to define this alphabet soup of terms? Most definitely, Tommy. Now we break it down further. There are actually many types of omega-3 fatty acids, but three important ones worth mentioning. Mainly those are alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, icosapentaenoic acid, EPA, and docasahexanoic acid, DHA. I'll be using the abbreviations for obvious reasons as we go by through this episode. ALA is found in plant oils, while DHA and EPA are found in fish and seafood. This is where the term fish oil comes into play. Fish oil refers to the fat or oil extracted from tissue in fish and usually contains these omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. Highly purified EPA is known as ethyl or IPE. The term fish oil has also been used in the sense that they also contain other substances, some of which may be harmful. These include saturated fats, Additionally, these dietary supplements often contain less omega-3 fatty acid concentration than indicated on their labels, which means the benefit may not be provided by doses that patients are taking of these OTC medications. Patrick, wow, that was a phenomenal overview of fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil, ALA, EPA, DHA, IPE, and more. Gosh, for a while there, I had flashbacks of sitting back in my OCHEM class as a first-year undergrad at UC Davis, listening to Neil Shore talk about carbon atoms and oxygen atoms. But Dr. Taub, how did we do? Anything to add to these definitions to set the stage for the battle of the oils? Well, I think there's a lot of abbreviations. It's an alphabet soup. And sometimes physicians have difficulty just keeping it straight. So you can imagine that patients are very confused. And we really have to be careful about dietary supplements because they're not FDA regulated. And the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that often preys on vulnerable patients. So it's really important that we curate for our patients what they should be doing. And in my view, I don't really view things as either an alternative medicine or a supplement or a prescription medication. What I look at more is what does the data show? So you either have the data to support the benefit or you don't have the data. And that data really needs to come from a rigorous clinical trial. And so a lot of these supplement fish oils have not gone through rigorous clinical trials. And in general, when you talk about supplements, you have to be careful because many of the compounds are not bioavailable when taken in a supplement form. So I always encourage my patients to obtain their vitamins and minerals through a healthy diet rather than through a supplement. So 
I joke with my patients that I don't want them to be paying for expensive urine, that I'd rather have them use their money to eat well-balanced, healthy meals where they can derive all these essential nutrients. And so fish oil is an example of a supplement that has really taken off, especially with some of the clinical trials that have been presented in the past couple of years. And so my patients will hear about these clinical trials and say, oh, fish oil is a good thing. So should I just buy some over-the-counter fish oil and take it? And I caution them because dietary supplements can have significant amount, up to 35% saturated fat. And over-the-counter fish oil is also prone to oxidation, which could decrease bioavailability. So for patients, especially if they have an indication, such as a secondary prevention indication or diabetes and high-risk features, where they need prescription fish oil because that's where the data is, that's where you have to guide them to. Because a lot of these supplements just aren't bioavailable and don't contain the ingredient that is beneficial in the clinical trials. Dr. Tom, that's a great explanation of the difference of how we as clinicians view data and view these supplements. The difference between that and how a patient may see something like marketing for omega-3 fatty acids, such as you know Patrick's chocolate milk, and see that as something that could help them. And it comes from a place of wanting to improve their health and be an active participant in their health. It comes from a really positive place. So I wonder, you know, when you see a patient in clinic who's started taking fish oils on their own, how do you approach it in terms of how you counsel them, where you balance off their investment in their health, but also making sure that they are getting something that's actually going to help them? And how often do you actually see people who have started themselves on supplements in your clinic? And are there any folks you would feel comfortable letting them continue on over-the-counter fish oil? So there's a lot of patients that take supplements. I would say high majority of the patients I see in my clinical practice take some type of supplement. And whether I allow them to continue with over-the-counter supplements really depends on their risk profile. So first of all, is it a primary prevention patient? Is it a secondary prevention patient? If it's a secondary prevention patient, then it's really important that they're on evidence-based therapy. But if it's a primary prevention patient who really has low risk features and they want to take something over the counter, I allow them to do it. And then I always say, let's follow your numbers. Let's look at how this supplement is impacting your triglycerides or your high sensitivity CRP. Let's look at what the data shows. So for each patient that wants to do a supplement, I try to work with them on coming up with an objective measure by which we can assess the supplement's benefit. And this happens a lot also with red yeast rice. I always tell patients, okay, you want to take the red yeast rice, that's fine, but let's have a recheck in three to six months. And many times I'll see that there's no change in the LDL with red yeast rice, or there hasn't been any change in triglycerides with the over-the-counter fish oil. And so this will make my point to the patient that what they're doing isn't yielding any benefit. So that's for my primary prevention, very low risk patient where I allow them to do that experiment and then to make a decision for themselves on whether they want to continue with the supplement. Because what I find is sometimes just kind of forcing your opinion on the patient 
doesn't really get you anywhere. Sometimes you have to let them try things out and you have to support them in their process. And so it's nice to kind of allow them to do it, make sure the supplement is safe, and then reevaluate. However, for the secondary prevention or high-risk patients, those with diabetes, it's a completely different story. For those patients, I really insist that they use something that is evidence-based. So my go-to is usually icosapent ethyl if I'm really focusing on risk reduction because it's the prescription fish oil that has the indication for cardiovascular event reduction. So I will emphasize to them that with their clinical scenario, it's really important that we use the appropriate agents. We don't have the time in someone who's had a recent MI to be experimenting with over-the-counter fish oil and waiting six months for the results of their lipid profile. That's a patient that could have an event in the next six months. So those are patients that I do insist on evidence-based therapy. And sometimes it's just about explaining it to patients why you want them to do a certain agent over another. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Tab. So much learning from that, just so much high-yield information that's clinically useful for us cardiologists. And I think it's so important that you mentioned that we want to base our care and make it patient-centered and have informed shared decision-making based on their risk profiles, such as the patient that you mentioned that might be low risk and heard about omega-3, that would be okay to continue those over-the-counter medications and follow the numbers and follow them up clinically. So, so much useful information there. And even before looking at the data, uh, I already had a feeling that over-the-counter fish oil was very, very commonly used. And I just completed my internal medicine residency recently And I have many times encountered patients who would often tell me, I also take fish oil in addition to their prescription medications. When I ask if a physician prescribed it to them, they would usually say, no, my friend or relative told me it was good for my heart or something along the lines of, I saw it on TV and it says it was good for me. I do admit until recently when working with the cardio nerds, I've started to make it a point to ask patients to show me what they are actually taking And telehealth, kind of a silver lining of dreadful COVID pandemic through video chat has made it easier since they would have their medications ready at home and can show those medications to me readily over video. But at any rate, omega-3 fish oil is one of the most common over-the-counter supplements taken by adults. A 2012 National Health Interview Survey showed that about 8% of adults have taken fish oil supplements within the prior 30 days of survey. The global market was reportedly around 3 to $4 billion in 2019 and projected to rise to $9 billion in 2026. So clearly, we have a fatty pandemic here. One thing I want to add to what you said is I love that you make them show you what they're taking because I can't tell you the number of times when I have detected really bad ingredients in supplements for instance, caffeine, ephedrine, and many of our patients, as you know, have arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. And so it's really important that we look at the bottles because you will be surprised at some of the additives that are added to supplements. The other thing that I wanted to mention about the primary prevention low-risk patient is I tell them, if you like the benefits of fish oil, spend some money on salmon, get yourself some good salmon at the grocery store rather than paying for that supplement. So that's the other thing is to find out if there are good, healthy dietary ways that they can get the essential ingredient of the supplement. 
these are some great tips, Dr. Tob, and I love the tips for replacing nutrition for the supplements themselves. And Patrick, thanks for sharing this data. It is just incredible how big a business over-the-counter supplements are and kind of mind-boggling that in contrast, how unregulated this area truly is. But regardless, let's move on to our cardio-nerdy battle of the oils, where we'll have head-to-head battles between different fatty acid formulations. Our fatty contestants are all oiled up, and we've already met them earlier. Pure EPA, over-the-counter fish oil, prescription IPE, prescription EPA-DHA combination, and generic IPE. Thanks for laying out the contestants there, Amit. And Dr. Tav, we hope you can help us adjudicate this. Round one, purify EPA versus over-the-counter omega-3 fish oils. Who wins this fight when it comes to cardiovascular outcomes? Well, for me, of all of the different options you've given, my vote is for prescription eicosapentaethyl. And again, I'm very data-driven, and it's based on the REDUCE-IT trial. And as you know, REDUCE-IT was a trial of over 8,000 patients who were followed for about five years. And these were patients that were high risk for cardiovascular events. So they either had established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or they were diabetic and over age 50, and also had a risk factor for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So our high risk patients. So these are not primary prevention in our traditional sense. So these patients were randomized to either eicosapentaethyl or a placebo, and everybody was on background statin. And what was really impressive about the trial is that the primary endpoint, which was a composite of a cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, revascularization and unstable angina that required hospitalization, but the absolute risk reduction was 4.8%. This is not a relative risk reduction, the absolute risk reduction. And I always, in all of the trials that I'm evaluating, I always look at the absolute risk reduction because I think that's a more pure number because sometimes you can be mesmerized by relative risk reduction. But I think an absolute risk reduction close to 5% is pretty impressive. And the number needed to treat for this trial was 21. So this is why I like ethyl. And if the other agents had this type of robust data, I would like them too. Okay, so from what I could tell between purified EPA versus over-the-counter omega-3, this round goes to prescription EPA or prescription IPE or purified EPA. Now, let's move on to another battle. Let's move to round two, prescription IPE, or pure EPA, versus prescription EPA-DHA combination. An example of prescription IPE is Vasepa, and an example of prescription EPA-DHA is Lavaza. Now, this is definitely a larger and ongoing conversation, and we have had varying viewpoints on the podcast as well as on prior journal clubs. Dr. Taub, what is your perspective and practice when it comes to prescription high-dose IPE versus combination EPA-DHA when it comes to treating hypertriglyceridemia and cardiac risk reduction? So this is a really great point that you bring up is what are the 
differences between some of these molecules. And what's confusing is the clinical trials have not been uniform. So not every clinical trial with a type of fish oil, whether it's an EPA-DHA combo or a pure DHA drug had been beneficial. The only trial that has shown clinical benefit is with icosapent ethyl. And so it becomes confusing because fish oil in general has data that shows it's beneficial. But this is where we have to delve into the fine details. So for instance, DHA is really an important building block in terms of the brain and neurotransmitter function. It's also important for retinal development. And there's been data that shows DHA is important for vision in infants and development of brain function in childhood. And so that's why some of the milks are fortified with DHA. And we talked about the chocolate milk earlier in the episode, and that's why it has DHA. It's kind of targeting the young population, especially the children that are drinking milk. But EPA does different things. For instance, when you look at some of the data with EPA, it's doing things that are important for older adults, such as decreasing inflammation increases nitric oxide. There's some data from imaging studies, including most recently the evaporate trial, that some of the bad plaque or the soft plaque is stabilized. And there's other data that shows that there's an increase in fibrous cap thickness, which stabilizes the plaque. So the simple way that I think about EPA versus DHA is you need both of them, but you need one more than the other at different stages of your life. So as a baby and as a kid, you want to make sure that you have enough DHA. And as you transition into older adulthood and you have high risk of cardiovascular disease, where inflammation is a big driver of cardiovascular disease. This is where you want to be looking at icosapent ethyl, which has multiple benefits in an older population. One thing that's interesting is the combo. So in the strength trial, they looked at the combo EPA plus DHA. And what they found in the strength trial is that there was actually no benefit with the combo. And again, this is where you have to be careful is every formulation is unique and different. And so when you have a combination, there could be some antagonizing aspects of one on the other. So there's a lot of theoretical concern that maybe some of the beneficial effects of EPA are blunted by DHA, and that could have been why the strength trial was a negative trial. I just think that one of the concepts that we always have to remember is every molecule is unique. In the SGLT2 inhibitor category, we have multiple SGLT2 inhibitors, but some are more potent and more effective than others. For instance, if you compare empagliflozin to ertagliflozin, empagliflozin has a much more profound impact on cardiovascular events than ertagliflozin. If you look at the statins and you look at rosuvastatin versus pravastatin, you see that rosuvastatin is much more potent in LDL-lowering than pravastatin. So similarly, you have to view these different molecules as being distinct and having their own unique properties. And so the way I look at it is icosapent ethyl is the formulation used in the reduce trial is a very unique molecule, and it has pretty profound effects on cardiovascular events. What's also really intriguing to me is the impact it has on inflammation. So if you look at the REDUCE-IT trial, there was a 40% lowering of 
high sensitivity CRP and about a 20% lowering of triglycerides. So to me, the impact on inflammation is even more profound than the impact on triglyceride lowering. So to me, this is a drug that is also working on the inflammation pathway. So I urge everyone to evaluate each individual drug and each individual molecule kind of individually and not try to say this is one class of drugs and three out of four trials are negative. So I'm going to not recommend fish oil at all for my patients, but rather look at each trial, look at the details of who was enrolled in the trial, and then also appreciate the uniqueness of each compound. Yeah, Dr. Todd, this is fascinating. And, you know, we kind of think of all these in a grab bag, omega-3 fatty acids, but clearly there are different molecules, different chemical species that interact with our bodies differently and therefore have different outcomes in terms of their biological effects. So, you know, coming back to that patient-centered interaction that we were talking about earlier, have you had issues with affordability and access when it comes to these high-dose prescription products like acosapentethyl? This is something that I struggle with every day, which is affordability. There are so many great medications such as the PCSK9s, SGLT2s, GLP1s, and of course, icosapentethyl is one of these medications, but they're expensive. I mean, icosapentethyl is about $300 a month. And for people that can use copay cards, that makes it easier. But I really struggle with my Medicare patients that are older, that are on a fixed income, and especially when I want to pile on multiple branded medications that are all about $300 a month, it really overwhelms the patient. And many, many times the patients will say to me, I can only afford one you need to pick the one that you think of all these that you want me to be on is the best one. And so it is a struggle. And as someone who loves data, I mean, I would love for my patients to be on four or five branded drugs, but from a realistic and practical perspective, sometimes we do have to make choices, even between different drug classes. And affordability is something that all of us have to navigate. So true, Dr. Todd, in terms of you know, our patients live in the real world and sometimes they only have so many dollars a month to spend on medications and trying to make sure that we're getting literally the most bang for our buck in terms of how we're reducing our patient's risk profile is so, so important. And that kind of leads us to round three and tying more into the idea of affordability. And this one, we're considering the difference between brand name icosapenethyl versus generic icosapenethyl. The FDA recently approved generic IPE and you know, one of the things we're wondering is, is this going to help lighten the cost burden of these medications? And are there today any clinically significant differences that are worth noting between generic and brand name IPE? So this is a really interesting issue because there's a company, it's called Hikma, and they had a big patent battle with Amarin and eventually they prevailed and now they have a generic IPE market that's been FDA approved. And the interesting thing about the generic market is you don't have to do an actual clinical trial. The compound just has to be certified as bioequivalent to the brand name product, which is Vasipa. But that's all they have to show. And so from a scientific point of view, I don't love the generic just because it doesn't have the data. That particular 
formulation hasn't gone into a large clinical trial. There's been no head-to-head trials. And so I struggle with that because on one hand, you want to give your patients affordable options, but on the other hand, you really have to balance that with efficacy and clinical trial data. And so I personally don't use the generic one because most of the patients that I see are in the secondary prevention and high risk category. And for them, I really try to get them the medication that has the data behind it. So this is an evolving area where there's going to be for other brands as well, generics. And the barrier to being on the market for a generic is very low. I will say there have been some studies just looking at kind of what changes biochemically between the generic eicosapent ethyl that's FDA approved. And there are some differences, like for instance, the increase in the EPA level is higher with Vasipa versus the generic. The reduction in serum arachidonic acid, which is beneficial, is greater with branded versus generic. So there are differences, at least in the biochemical assays between the generic and the branded, but this is a struggle where we have to not be such purists because we also have to realize from a practical point, well, if my patient can't afford it, what's my next option? And so for the patients that cannot afford to take Vasipa, this is an alternative. Thank you so much again, Dr. Taub. So much learning here. Thank you for taking us through the battle of the oils. Again, so much learning here. I've been taking notes as you've been speaking and so many things that I didn't know before. So going back and circling back to my chocolate milk, I just want to say I consider myself or I'd like to consider myself very young. So I might just go back and have a sip of that chocolate milk again. But also just wanted to ask, what would be your main takeaways or take home points for us in this episode? First of all, I love that you're young. And I will tell you that when you're in the beginning of your cardiology fellowship, you are like a baby. You are learning so many things. And there's probably a lot of neurons that are firing all the time. So I think it's okay for you to take your chocolate milk with the DHA. I think the takeaways in terms of approaching supplements versus uh, prescription medication in general is always look at the data, look at the clinical trial and look at the robustness of the data and making the determination on what your patients should be taking. And you always have to balance the ideal drug with cost. That's a battle that clinicians have to face every day. Do everything you can to get your patient the evidence-based medication, whether it's taking the extra time to do the prior off or helping them get a copay card. But in the event you can't, it is reasonable to use the generic that they can afford so that they do get something. But I think in general, the fish oil space is interesting and it's gonna be an area that's going to continue to have an increased market share, especially because of all of the great trials. And I would like us to even do more head-to-head trials, for instance, looking at how does ethyl compare to the generic version of it in terms of clinical outcomes. And anything that we can do to generate more data is going to be very beneficial for our patients. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Taub. And we'd like to finish with one of our favorite questions that we ask all of our experts. 
what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? And before you answer that, I also want to recall that you are the founding director of the Step Family Foundation of Cardiac Rehabilitation and the Wellness Center. And we routinely order cardiac rehab after PCI. I'm an interventional fellow after ACS. There's some data for cardiac rehab that you know Dr. Mentz put out with ESC for cardiac rehab in heart failure patients. And when I talk to patients and I ask them, you know, what are some of the most useful things that you've been provided in your care? And universally, if they've had cardiac rehab, they talk about cardiac rehab. So maybe in talking about what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention, I'd love to also hear your perspective on your work with cardiac rehabilitation and how we can engage our patients and what the value is for the incredible work I'm sure you guys are doing in the rehabilitation center. Well, what you just said made my heart flutter because I love hearing how patients benefit from cardiac rehab. And there's no magic to cardiac rehab. It's really about creating a great environment where patients can learn, where they can engage in healthy lifestyle. And what really makes great cardiac rehab programs is the community that the patients have in cardiac rehab from the staff to the other patients that are all going through similar situations. Like a lot of people have had a recent MI and so they have other people to talk to and to exercise with. And so the beauty to me of cardiac rehab is the community that it creates and the support that it provides the patients. In addition to all of the other benefits that cardiac rehab has been proven to demonstrate, including improvement in mortality, reduction in hospital readmission. So I'm really happy to hear that your patients tell you how much they're benefiting. So getting back to your other question about what makes my heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? To me, it's always about the amazing people. And that ranges from the patients that I take care of to the great mentees I'm privileged to mentor, to my brilliant colleagues that teach me something new every day that cause my heart to flutter. I will say my kids probably make my heart go into VT sometimes, but that's okay. And also, I should say that when I think about how excited the cardio nerds are about cardiology and the passion that the cardio nerds have about learning, that also makes my heart flutter. Dr. Taub, thank you for an excellent take-home message there. And I think what I'm taking away from this is just how powerful these communities are. Not only the community that we have here as cardio nerds, being able to talk with experts like yourself and get together as a community of fellows and residents and trainees interested in learning about cardiology and providing care to our patients, but also the community that you're forming with your patients. And whether it's in the cardiac rehab center or in the clinic, you know, being able to counsel someone through lowering their risk profile and talk them through how to find a medication regimen that's affordable to them and navigate these cost barriers, that only comes from the community that you form amongst your patients. And that's something that's just so inspiring to hear you talk about. And I'm energized as I go forward with my own fellowship and my own practice as I grow as a cardiologist. So I just want to thank you again so much for taking the time to be with us tonight and to talk about triglycerides, talk about over-the-counter fish oils, and really delve deep in this topic. It's really great to be here. And I always learn from my fellows. I think that if you're not challenging us, you're not doing your job. So I really appreciate how you guys have put this together. I do want to say the VT was a joke. So everybody was thinking about kids. You should have kids. It's very rewarding. So don't let me discourage you. 
I love my boys. I've got a four-year-old and, and baby twins, and they are amazing. And I look forward to coming to them. And they're the best thing in my life. But I was thinking to myself, like, oh my gosh, she gets it. I could totally relate to having a flutter every now and then, both, you know, both directions. Very benign flutter and sometimes a stressful flutter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So again, I just want to thank everyone for being a part of this episode. I especially want to thank Patrick for being the fit leader for this episode, planning the script, planning our discussion topics, and really shaping this conversation in so many ways. So big thanks to him for being a big part of this episode. And for all of our listeners, stay tuned for our continued series on triglycerides. We're going to have great episodes that delve even deeper on the inflammatory model of ASCVD and how triglyceride-lowering agents play a part of that, as well as digging even more on some of the data regarding IPE. So I hope you stay tuned, and I hope you continue to enjoy the series. Take care, everyone.